following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Well, if you're watching this video this morning, it's just because I can't make it uh, this morning for church. I wasn't sure if I could or not. Uh, so, yeah, if you're watching this, obviously I didn't. So we're going to keep going in 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 5 and go through verse 8 this morning. We're getting close to the end of this book. And just a reminder, this was really Paul's final hurrah to Timothy, that he's giving a lot of information. And because Paul sees his death coming, there's a sense of urgency that kind of underlies the book as he's getting his last bits of advice into this young fledgling preacher who was also kind of a protege of Paul's we saw as a son. So as we get near the end, we read this. But you must stay focused, self-controlled, and be alert at all times. Tolerate suffering. Accomplish the good work of an evangelist and complete the ministry to which you have been called. I am already being poured out. And the last drops of the drink offering are all that remain, and it's almost time for me to leave. Uh, leave, by the way, it's the way Paul's referring to his death. The word is interesting. When you see it used in the Greek, it's like a ship pulling up anchor. They've been one place. They want to go another place. Or it's a Roman army that's made an encampment, and they need to move on. So when Paul says he's leaving, it's a different word than saying it's over. He's relocating, and he's looking forward to it. It says, I have fought the good fight. I've stayed on course and I have finished the race. And through it all, I have kept the faith. I look forward to what's in store for me, a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the always right and just judge, will give me that day. But it's not only for me, it's for all those who have loved or who have longed for his appearing. And your version of the Bible may say something different there, either have loved or have longed for. Kind of both things are caught in that verse, and we'll get to that a little bit later. You get a sense that Paul knew this was coming. He had written in the book of Philippians, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from the faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. And now you see in his letter to Timothy that this even if I'm poured out has become I am already. So Paul's seeing his blood as what a lot of commentaries call a libation. So when the Jewish people did sacrifices, and actually this is probably pretty common with most of the cultures at that time, they would typically do a burnt offering, and then at the end they would pour usually wine over what was burnt. That's the libation. It's the final act of the sacrifice. And it appears that Paul's, Paul knows he was under a death sentence here. And he notes, I'm already being poured out, which suggests perhaps the torture had begun. Uh, that's not stated directly in the text, but it seems like a reasonable implication. So his blood is going to finish off a life of sacrifice. He writes other places about presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. That he has done. And he's about to literally give his life. And the final shedding of his blood is his final act of spiritual commitment for this physical reality. And then he gives his classic kind of legacy statement. I have fought the good fight. I have stayed on course and finished the race. And through it all, I have kept the faith. I want to go through the three parts of that statement. 
So I have fought the good fight is probably a games term. Paul liked to reference the Greek games. It shows up in probably everything that he wrote, and this is no exception. Literally, this is, I have wrestled the good wrestling. Or one commentary says, I have played out the honorable game. So this has two layers of meaning. One idea is that you've simply done a good job. You've struggled with determination. You've had commitment. So that's good. That's part of the good fight. You've, you've got character and you've got integrity that has shown up in what you're doing. But then there's also the idea that the cause itself is good and honorable. So it speaks to the nobility of the cause you're fighting for or the nobility of the person for which you fight. So I think a key point needs to be made here because the emphasis on fighting the good fight is probably more on the second part, that is, the cause for which Paul is fighting. Not every struggle is noble. Not every cause we can give our life for is good. I'll give you two practical examples. When I was a kid, I was a handful when I was a kid. I got in a lot of trouble, and uh, my dad used corporal punishment quite frequently until the message finally sunk in. And I remember one time, I had just been terrible that day to my mom. And when my dad got home, my mom had said, wait till your dad gets home. And I did. I waited. And he gets home, and mom let him know what was happening, and dad came into the room with a look on his face, and I knew this was not going to go well for me. So he starts administering corporate punishment, and I kick him. I kick him. And uh, so that didn't go well. I don't recommend that response. But I fought. But I don't think anybody in this room would argue that, that was a good fight. Well done, Anthony. It was a, a bad cause. I was trying to avoid kind of a just punishment for my sins. Uh, I remember after a shoulder surgery that I had, uh, I was coming out of anesthesia. And apparently, according to the nurses, I really put up a fight coming out of anesthesia. And that's a bad idea after you've had surgery where you shouldn't be moving much. So that wasn't the good fight, right? It was a fight. It just simply wasn't the good fight. So Paul quotes a lot of Greek authors. He references a lot of Greek things. And there's an interesting passage from a Greek writer at the time named Euripides that gives a good example of what Paul means when he says the good fight, because it's the exact same expression that you can find in culture that Paul uses in Scripture. It gives us a good idea of what Paul's talking about. In this case, Euripides was talking about a scenario where a wife laid down her life for her husband. But that was after both his parents had refused to do it. They, they were too cowardly, and so this guy's wife did it. And Euripides says of these parents, and apparently they also spoke in King James English, thou, that is the parents, wouldst not, neither darest thou to die for thy son. Thou wouldst have fought a good fight, hadst thou died for thy son. And that's Paul's language here. I have fought the good fight. It was a noble cause for which I gave my life. You know, sometimes we get bloodied, bloodied for terrible causes. Uh, from the perspective of the Bible, bravery and courage and even willing to take the blows of battle are not enough to make it a good fight. And I'll give you a practical example, a couple of them, because I think we know this. So we don't have to look further than 9-11 to know this is true. Uh, I suppose the terrorists were brave. I think you could make that argument. They were willing to give their lives for a cause. They were faithful to the end. But I don't think any of us would look at that and go, uh, well done, you fought the good fight, because the cause was evil. It didn't matter what kind of person was fighting in that cause, because the cause was not a good one and it was not just. 
Uh, it's why we don't applaud KKK members who have stuck with it till the end of their life. Their faithfulness does not count for them because they stuck with something horrific. I mean, from 1882 to 1959, that's about 75 years. There's about 5,000 lynchings in the U.S. And a lot of that fueled from what was coming out of organizations like that. So if you're dedicated to a movement that fuels that kind of thing, that counts against you, not for you. We make this distinction when we see uh, protesters or rioters, right? When they get tear gassed or they get arrested. If we think the cause is noble, then we think they have fought the good fight and that they're heroes. But if we think their cause is not, then we think they're criminals and maybe even terrorists who get what's coming to them. We constantly make distinctions about what makes a fight a good fight. And that's the kind of distinction Paul is making. I even think of it when it comes to church. If we're not careful, we can get bloodied in battles in church that we have no business bloodying each other over. So I grew up in the kind of church community. It was pretty conservative. And I remember churches splitting over how big the size of a covering should be that a woman wore. I remember churches splitting over what version of the Bible should you, they should use. Like the NIV was close to pagan at one point. Uh, I remember churches splitting over their views of the end times. Even though everybody agreed Christ is returning, they would bloody each other over how that was supposed to unfold. Uh, closer to home, I think we can make the same argument just about our discussions in the last year about the elections and things involving how to respond to COVID. I think we bloody each other. And it's not the good fight. So even if... Uh, even if we're right, even if we're right, and hopefully we are, <laughs> we're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody about anything, even if we're right, not every cause deserves the same level of being willing to die on a particular hill, right? Sincere and radical commitment is not enough. I mean, we have to have truth, right? That matters too, but it's the cause that matters. And when Paul is talking about, I have fought the good fight, He's showing a particular kind of priority. You could see throughout Paul's life, there were a lot of small skirmishes that Paul was a part of as well. But it never distracted him from what was the main thing he was there for. What was the thing to give his life for? What was the thing to get bloodied about? And this brings us to his next point where he says, I have finished the course. So this is also a reference to the games. This would be runners going around a track, which is why you get this picture on the screen, in case you're wondering. So the runner has the course marked out for them to run. And Paul says, this is the reality of my life. I have a course marked out for me. And he explains what that course is in Acts 20, verse 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. And here it is the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's the cause. That's the course. That's the thing that Paul has been fighting for. I think we can get distracted by the question, uh, what am I supposed to do with my life? Because I think we often mean, what vocation is the exact fit for me? Or what am I supposed to do with the particular kinds of talents and gifts that I have? Now, those are important questions. Don't get me wrong. I've done entire sermons on those questions. I think there's things we want to wrestle with and try to discern as followers of Christ. So hear me carefully on this. It's not the most important question. 
if you're asking that question in the deepest sense, what am I supposed to do with my life? Our answer is the same as Paul's answer. It's testify to the good news of God's grace. That's what God wants all of us as his children to do with our lives. This can happen anywhere, in any situation, uh, in, in any state that we are in, whether we are frustrated because we don't know where we're going, we feel like we're spinning our wheels or we feel like we're stuck somewhere that is meaningless or we feel like we're just flowing and flourishing in the place God has placed us. In all of these places, the most foundational answer to the question, what am I supposed to do with my life, is testify to the good news of God's grace. And also notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't actually brag about how awesome he was in the fight. He says, I fought the good fight. But remember, that means I have fought in a noble cause. I fought for the right thing. And then he, he just says, I finished the race. He doesn't say, guys, I crushed it. Uh, like, I nailed it. You should have seen me. I was poetry in motion from step one. Like, all the crowd, they couldn't take their eyes off me as I was running. I mean, women were weeping and men were wishing they were me. That is not what Paul is talking about at all. Paul just says, guys, I, I finished it. And it makes sense when you read everything else Paul wrote, because he's pretty clear in his writing that he saw himself as the chief of sinners. And we've talked about this before, that if you track Paul's writing chronologically, he, he actually goes from saying, like, I'm the least of the apostles. He's still kind of name dropping. Just so you don't forget, I'm apostle. But I just, I'm the least of the apostles. And, and the last thing he says along those lines is, I am the worst of sinners. Like the longer he followed God, the more he saw himself for who he was in the sense of left to myself and in my flesh, guys, I'm a disaster. And he's real honest about that. In his first letter to Timothy, he notes this, and I'm reading now from chapter one, beginning of verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement observing full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So notice there's no bragging here about the merits of self-help or about him pulling himself by his spiritual bootstraps. In fact, Paul says that God's using Paul to demonstrate his perfect patience. Like, apparently, Paul is the kind of guy that even kind of... <laughs> pushes God to his limits, so to speak, like, gracious, Paul, my patience for you is going to have to be perfect to handle you. And, and you see even more from what Paul writes, where he looks at himself and acknowledges he, he knows the kind of patience and grace God must be extending to him. Now I'm reading from, oh no, I believe this is the book of Romans. I forgot to include the chapter here, but I have the verses. It starts in verse 15. It says, listen, I can't explain my actions. Here's why. 
I'm not able to do the things I want. And at the same time, I do the things I despise. If I'm doing the things I've already decided not to do, I'm agreeing with the law regarding what is good. But now I'm no longer the one acting. I've lost control. Sin has taken up residence in me and is wreaking havoc. I know that in me, that is in my fallen human nature, there's nothing good. I can will myself to do something good, but that doesn't help me carry it out. I can determine that I'm going to do good, but I don't do it. Instead, I end up living out the evil I decided not to do. If I end up doing the exact same thing I pledged not to do, I'm no longer doing it because sin has taken up residence in me. Here's an important principle I've discovered. Regardless of my desire to do the right thing, it is clear that evil is never far away. Deep down, I am in happy agreement with God's law, but the rest of me does not concur. I see a very different principle at work in my bodily members, and it is at war with my mind. I have become a prisoner in this war to the rule of sin in my body. I am absolutely miserable. Is there anyone who could free me from this body where sin and death reign so supremely? And the answer is, yes, I'm thankful to God for the freedom that comes through the Lord Jesus, our anointed one. I mean, this is a guy well aware of who he is apart from Christ, and he's well aware that he's a work in progress even while he's in Christ. And he's aware also of just how glorious that makes Jesus, who's able to extend a perfect patience and grace to him. So fighting the good fight has nothing to do with our goodness and everything to do with the cause for which we're fighting and the strength that God gives us in his grace to press on to the end. Which is why he could say, third part, I've kept the faith. So this is the good cause that makes the fight good. Keeping the faith can mean two things potentially here, probably mean both. The first is that Paul has kept a body of doctrine safe from distortion and heresy. That would actually make sense that he's writing this to Timothy, because if you remember, a lot of this letter has to do with watch out for false teachers, watch out for false prophets. You've got to guard the truth of the revelation God gave us. It probably also means that Paul was personally faithful. He stayed committed to the end, not that he was perfect. He himself makes that clear, but he was committed. Uh, either one seems very possible. In fact, I found one commentary called the Pulpit Commentary that kind of blends these two together. So let's just look at what they're saying. Through his long eventful course, in spite of all difficulties, conflicts, dangers, and temptations, he had kept the faith of Jesus Christ committed to him, inviolable, unadulterated, whole, and complete. He had not shrunk from confessing it when death stared him in the face. He had not corrupted it to meet the views of Jews or Gentiles, and with courage and resolution and perseverance, he had kept it to the end. So it sounds to me like keeping the faith is this combination of two things. One is preserving orthodoxy, that is preserving right belief. And the other is committing to orthopraxy, which is a commitment to living well or right actions. If I can offer an encouragement to those of you who are struggling right now, either through just situations in life or maybe even struggling with your faith, and that might even be connected to those situations in life. Notice that Paul doesn't say anything here about how he feels or how he felt. 
he didn't think that his faith was going to make his life easy. In fact, if you just read the life of Paul and you read through his own list of all the suffering he went through as a follower of Christ and see how many letters he wrote from jail and recognize his last one is being written as he is already in, in the process of being poured out as that final libation. Uh, Paul's not talking just about feelings here. In the midst of all these things, Paul stood on two things. He knew it was true and he knew what to do. So he clung to orthodoxy and he lived orthopraxy. And in the end, he says, I have fought the noble fight. I finished, finished, and I kept the faith. And even as he's saying that and looking back over his life, he's looking forward. The next thing he says is, uh, the next thing that's in store for me is a crown of righteousness, which is probably another reference to the games where the winner gets a crown. There's one historical record of one of the people in the games, Pythias, broad-shouldered son of Lampo. I'm going to start referring to myself that way. Anthony, broad-shouldered son of Leon, won the crown of the double contest, which was wrestling and boxing at the Nemean Games. Good for Pythias. But note what Paul says about this crown. Paul, Paul doesn't say, Paul, broad-shouldered son of Paul's dad, Wanness, look at me. Paul says, listen, all those who have loved or who have longed for his appearing have a crown of righteousness waiting for them because we don't get the crown based on how broad-shouldered we are, right? The race isn't about finishing ahead of other people. It's about finishing. And it's about finishing by the grace and through the power of God. There, there's a reward for when we finish the race, because we have a broad-shouldered Savior who conquered death, hell, and the grave, so we even have a race to run, and then he helps us run it. We even get a hint at what keeps Paul, and I think by extension us, focused. He says, the crown is waiting for those who have loved or who have longed for his appearance. And as I noted before, your translations may differ on this, but I think the best understanding is, once again, another word that has a dual meaning. Uh, this is a reference to the two epiphanies, the two kind of revelations of God. The first is when he comes to earth 2,000 years ago. So that part of the statement is people who have loved his appearance. They love the fact that Jesus came to earth, the incarnate son of God, to die for us, rising again, offering us salvation. They love that. But the second part is because they love that, they long to see him again. And of course, in the early church and even today, that longing is partly is looking forward to the end of history where God wraps things up and he returns. But honestly, that's what happens at death. That's, that's an earlier appearing than that. And that's why I think you see other places in Scripture where well, Paul will say, listen, to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's always a sense in which Christians are called to uh, kind of foster that longing to see Christ even in the face of death, right? So we have loved his appearance and we long for his appearance. I, I was looking for this this loving idea. Um, once again, my, I guess my question was, is this a deeply emotional word? Is it a practical word? Is What is like, do we drum up something inside of us? Like if I feel like I'm not loving God, is it on me to feel more? Or what is this asking us to do? So I went back to my 
trusted commentaries and word studies because it turns out they have a lot to offer about the context of these original things. So this is from Helps Word Studies. They give two different uh, kind of explanations of the word love. As you might expect, it comes from the root word agape. But first they say, for the believer, it's preferring to live through Christ. That is simply embracing God's will, choosing his choices, and obeying them through his power. Another way of thinking of it with the believer, it means actively doing what the Lord prefers, doing this with him by his power and direction. So if I could summarize kind of the context of those words into what Paul is saying, I think what he's saying is this, that those who have loved the appearance of Christ, they have embraced God's will, that is, choosing his choices and preferring his preferences, and they've been obedient with the help of God's power and direction. I kind of suspect that's what leads us to longing for his return. Uh, I don't think obedience is something that we simply do for Christ. I think it's how we get to know him, honestly. Something about that process of walking in the path of righteousness, where we're walking for the sake of an image, arm in arm with Jesus, I think it's a way of communing with God. I mean, we, com we commune through God's word, obviously. We commune through prayer, right? There's lots of ways we commune. But I think one of the most practical ways is that we simply walk in his footsteps. We walk with him in the path of righteousness. Obedience is how we get to know Jesus. And Jesus said at one point, um, if you love me, you keep my commandments. That's often tied together. I think what Paul's suggesting here is that those who have loved Christ have learned to walk in his way as a means of getting to know him. And as they get to know him, as they walk with him, uh, this is what I think the psalmist means when he talks about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. It's experiencing the life that Christ has to offer. As the Holy Spirit's transforming us inside, God's word is building our hearts and minds and souls. And in the process of obedience, once again, it's not just something we're doing for Jesus. We're getting to know Jesus by walking with him. And then I think when we really get a taste of that, we're, we're getting a glimpse of his appearing and we begin to long for that day when we see God in the fullness of his glory, which is going to happen uh, on the other side. Like Paul says at the beginning, at some point it's going to be time for us to leave. And that's when we get to experience that fullness of God's glory. I'd like to do something today as a time for us to kind of reflect and pray. And if you are here in the room and you have not yet picked up notes, which are over by the door, uh, I have the four questions kind of spaced out at the end. So you've got some room to write. If you would like to, you don't have to. Uh, there's pens and pencils back there on the back wall if you would like to pick something up. And you've got a little time to move around here. Just don't walk in front of the camera if you can help it. For those of you at home, notes are posted online in the thread of the discussion here, and maybe even in the original post, you can find stuff there. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to give some time here. It's not going to be sufficient time. And we'll have some music playing once again as we go through this. But think of this as a starting point for four key questions that come from this particular message. And it's still aligned with what we've been doing throughout January, and that is repenting. Seeing repentance as that thing that is moving us more fully into that path of obedience. And as we just pointed out here, I really believe that's a way in which we get to know Jesus. So this is 
This is us doing honest introspection of our heart, praying for the Holy Spirit to give us um, insight and discernment about what the things are that we're needing to offer to God, and then actively praying for God to help us and to give us direction on what it looks like to turn around, which is a key part of repentance. So I am going to put the questions up on the screen one at a time. And then once I read them and finish whatever little explanation I have, I'm going to give one minute. I even have a timer. Just one minute, just for us to think and pray. And once again, I encourage you to see this as a springboard to further thought and prayer this week. Don't let this just be four minutes of reflection. Um, I, I really think God has more to do in us on this issue than four minutes worth. Uh, but we'll start this morning. Uh, once we're done with these, we're just going to move right into a time of musical worship uh, as a way to summarize the morning. All right, first question. What does it look like for you to focus your primary effort on fighting the good fight rather than getting distracted by all kinds of secondary fights that, while perhaps good in their own way, are not the good fight? Maybe another way of thinking of this is, are there areas in your life in which priorities have been compromised about where to get bloodied? And if so, what does it look like to realign your life such that fighting the good fight, that is testifying to the grace of God, is the front and center thing? And in order for that to move front and center, what other things might have to give way? Second question, in what ways has it been challenging to stay the course in your life? So keeping in mind, Paul's course was testifying to the good news of God's grace. That would be with his words and with his actions, both uh, speaking and living a life that is a testimony to the goodness of God. In what ways has it been challenging to stay the course in your life? What does repentance or turning around look like for you in that area?
Question number three. If keeping the faith is a two-part thing like Paul seems to suggest, that is, working at studying to preserve the truth of God's revealed word, rightly dividing the word of truth, and the other part is committing to live a life of righteousness, recognizing we struggle imperfectly, but nonetheless we struggle. In what areas do you need to pray for the Holy Spirit to help you keep the faith? Final question. Do you love and long for the appearance of Christ? What I mean by that is, have you embraced God's will? That is, choosing his choices and preferring his preferences. I'm going to adjust this real quick. Are there areas of your life that you need to surrender more fully so that the Holy Spirit will align your preferences and choices with the heart of mind of God? Do you love and long for the appearance of Christ? encourage you to ponder and pray more this week uh, these areas Paul's final words in some ways uh, are loaded with the depth of meaning deeply profound moments doesn't sound entirely right like the rest of the Bible isn't. I'm just, I'm thinking of Paul facing death and knowing I've got final words to say. And here they are. And uh, let's not look away from them too quickly. Let's use them as a foundation to examine our own lives uh, and really ask God sincerely to reveal to us, how are we doing?
What does it look like for us to be able to say at the end of our life with great confidence that which Paul has said? At this point, I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. They'll lead you in musical worship for the rest of this morning. Uh, thanks. Look forward to seeing you next week. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.